Hey, uh, this morning um, we're kicking off our fall series, which is really fun. Um, we're calling it When Jesus Comes to Church. When Jesus Comes to Church. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to ask a question along this series. And the question was, what would happen if Jesus showed up at TFRC? Like, what would happen? And now, Jesus already does, right? In spiritual ways, Jesus is present with us. But what if Jesus actually in body walks through the back doors here? Like, what would happen if that happened? Um, what would happen if Jesus showed up to our Wednesday recharge or showed up to our four-by-fours or heart-to-hearts or small groups or any other ways we're connected around here? Or, or what if Jesus showed up um, in our daily lives, just popped in, in body, and walked with us for, for a couple of days. Um, what would Jesus say to us? Um, would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he have to correct us? Or would he compliment us on our deep, deep faith? Um, what would Jesus say to us? And so in this series, what we wanted to do is we wanted to explore that question. What would happen if Jesus came to church? Now, uh, to help us answer that question, we're going to be working our way through a couple chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, that's the last book in the Bible. Um, the, the letter of Revelation is a letter written by the Apostle John. Um, and the point of the letter was to give hope to a church that had suffered um, incredible difficulty and persecution. Um, hope that um, despite the trying times for this, for this early church, that God was still on the move, that God was still up to something, that God was still present, that God still had a plan, that God could actually do something about the hardship in life. Even though life is hard and difficult, that God is still Involved. That's really what the letter of Revelation is about. Now, near the beginning of the letter of Revelation, the Apostle John addresses seven churches. Um, now, the number seven matters for a couple reasons, because there were seven churches, but also numbers um, in the ancient world, especially in Judaism, had meaning. They had particular meaning. And the number seven had meaning. It, it means fullness or wholeness or completion or something like that. And so John writes in particular to these seven churches, but he writes to these seven churches with the expectation that really all the churches in the area would get a hold of this letter and read it. And they would read this letter as if that letter were written to them as well. Now, if you have your Bible... I'd invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I want to show you something there a second. Revelation 1, verse 9. This is what it says. Um, this is John writing. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. See, Jesus um, is actually the one that's speaking in this letter. And John is basically just the scribe in this letter. Jesus is speaking through John's writing to each of these churches. Jesus is going to church at these seven churches, and he has something to say, to encourage them, to admonish them, all of those things. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to take a look at these seven 
letters to these seven churches, and we want to read it as if Jesus was saying something to us, like Jesus was walking in this space this morning. And so this morning we're going to start with the first letter. That is the letter um, to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And, and as we listen to our scripture reading this morning, I encourage you to do something. Um, listen to it as if Jesus is actually speaking to us this morning as we listen to our scripture reading. So um, our scripture reading this morning is uh, found in Revelation 2, um, starting in verse 1. And then our scripture reader this morning is going to be Ryan Demlo. Ryan, you can head on up when you're ready. And church, what we do here, if you're able to, is we stand and we face the center of the room as the scripture is read. Uh, the reason we do this week after week after week is because the Bible, this book, actually matters. It should be central, just like the Bible is read in the middle of this room. So Ryan, when you're ready, take it away. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thank you, Ryan. You all may take a seat. Um, I can still remember it was the winter of 2001. I was a ninth grader, which bothers some of you, I think. Um, I was a ninth grader on a giant bus packed with other students from my youth group, and then we were headed to a winter camp, and the winter camp was found at, at Spring Hill Camps in northern Michigan. Um, Spring Hill Camps was like the total package camp. It was like, kind of like Hume Lake from what I've heard. There were high-quality dramas and performances. There was music, uh, worship music from up-and-coming bands. Some would later appear on the radio. There were um, dynamic speakers and teachers that came in um, that were just great to listen to. And then there was this thing called broomball. Does anyone know what broomball is? This is a Midwest thing. I'm learning this today. Have you heard of hockey? Okay, we're making progress. Okay, broomball is played on ice just like hockey, um, except you use a broom and a ball instead of, you know, the hockey stuff. And so you have these kids on ice with just tennis shoes on, running around on ice, trying to shoot goals with a broom, with a ball, and running into each other, and it's great. It's really the greatest thing you've ever done. Um, the best part about broomball is it's done in the middle of winter when it's very, very cold, and you know you've had a great match of broomball um, when your nose hair starts to freeze. I don't know if you've had that before. Anyway, so I was at this winter camp, and it was Saturday night, 
And the speaker was speaking about committing our lives to Jesus and, and the high priority of committing our lives to Jesus for each student in the room. And I can remember sitting there with my band of buddies around me and we're all eyes locked on this speaker, everyone intently listening. And all of us, you could tell, we all felt convicted in that moment. We really wanted to be people that follow Jesus, just like this speaker said. And so after the speaker finished speaking, our youth pastor came up to us. His name was Clint, and he sat down with my band of buddies, these guys, and he walked us through what it looks like to commit our lives to Jesus, and we prayed. And it was, it was really one of those holy moments in my story. Um, it was a great moment. I never wanted to be in a different spot than that camp. Like the feeling, the emotion of it, um, God seemed so present at that camp, and I never wanted that to go away ever in my faith. And then I remember getting back on the bus and heading home, and it wasn't two days later, and it seemed like all of that was ancient history. And then a year and a half later, I went to a summer camp, and the speaker came, and he was talking about committing our lives to Jesus, and I did it again. I'm com twice committed. I don't know about you. I'm twice committed. And it was really exciting. I didn't want to leave that space again. And then camp ended and I went home and it wasn't a week later. And it seemed like ancient history again. The moment was gone. Have you ever had one of those intense summer camp kind of moments? Like where faith is so real in that moment. And God is so obviously present in that moment. It's the moment where you're like, man, I just, I just want to stay in this moment. This is what it's supposed to feel like, right? We love that moment. You know, I think it's actually important that all of us have at least one of those moments in our lives, in our faith. It's super important. There's something about that, that incubation period where you sit in a safe place and you get to be with God and it's not hard to be so and you can just learn from Jesus and grow closer to Jesus in that space. It's one of the reasons why we want to build that building over there. So that there's kids and students and they get to have that moment, that summer camp experience of meeting God in that incubator, right? It's a really important thing for each of us. But you see, there's the moment when you have to leave. You leave summer camp. And then reality, for whatever reason, seems to set in. And then that priority of faith, that intensity, that spiritual high some of us talk about, it begins to fade, and our faith seems to grow stale. And then for some of us, um, we actually have these moments in our lives where we kind of oscillate. We go to the summer camp experience, and it's great, and we're close to God. And then it's like a long moment of spiritual apathy after that. And then we make it to the next one, or we go to that Christian concert or festival, and we have that God moment, and then it returns back to normal, spiritual apathy sets in, and then we get that another hit from whatever that next thing is. Does your faith look like that at all? You know, you might have a summer camp faith, is what I'm talking about. You might have a summer camp faith if your faith tends to be driven by emotion and feeling. You might have a summer camp kind of faith um, if your faith doesn't cost you much, it seems to be easy in those 
special moments. You might have a summer camp faith if you treat your faith in your church like a consumer, like there's goods to be gotten and you want those things from whatever it may be, your faith or your church. You might be in a summer camp faith kind of mind if your faith goes through these weird seasons of, of intense faith and then long periods of just dryness and nothing. And then intense faith and then dryness and nothing. Spiritual apathy. If you're honest, does your faith look at all like that when you look back? Now, our scripture reading this morning um, shows us a pretty remarkably different kind of faith. Um, our scripture reading is Jesus showing up to the church in Ephesus. I might call it an Ephesian faith or something like that. It's a different kind of faith than a summer camp faith. An Ephesian faith is virtually the opposite, right? To be a follower of Jesus in Ephesus 2,000 years ago was incredibly hard. It was difficult. It was an up hill battle. There was no summer camp moments. It was faith by fire. That's what faith was like. Christianity was viewed with great suspicion and hostility, and Christians were a despised minority. It was a really hard time to follow Jesus in the Roman world, and the cost to be a follower of Jesus was impossibly high. There were so many Christians at this time who paid the ultimate sacrifice for following Jesus, for having that faith. Some were tortured until they died. Some were given over to wild animals until they died. Some were burnt to death and used as street lighting when they died. It's an intense faith. And that kind of cost changes the way we view our faith, right? And so the Ephesian church, it had this intensity to it. For the Ephesians, there was this high focus on truth. Truth really mattered, and they wanted to know their theology well, and they wanted to make sure it was right. And there was also this equally high focus on discipline. They wanted to make sure that the things that they did day in and day out in their lives were exactly what the faith called for. It was intense. There was an intensity to it. And you see, Jesus comes to the church in Ephesus, and Jesus sees all of this in the Ephesian church. That he can see that they're paying a price. And Jesus has something to say about it. If you have your Bible, open to Revelation 2. Uh, verses 2 through 3, a second. This is Jesus speaking to the, to the church in Ephesus. This is what he says. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, despite the difficulty for the church in Ephesus, despite the hardship, the unpopularity, despite the fact that their lives were constantly in danger only because of this faith that they seemed to profess, they persevered. They persevered until the end. It is a faith of grit for the Ephesian church. You know, when we think about it, does our faith look at all like that? Do we have a gritty faith? Does your faith look that way? When you look at your faith, does it look like an Ephesian kind of faith? The, the church in Ephesus was literally murdered for their faith. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was happening, and they never gave up the faith. Do we have that kind of perseverance today? 
When you look at your faith, you're like, yep, that's me. I'm one of those people. Do you? Um, a few months ago, I watched a movie, and it was one of those movies that you watch, and it just kind of messes with you for a while, right? Um, it was a true story um, about two priests who went on a missionary journey to Japan to bring the gospel. And the movie was called Silence. It's not a kid movie, just FYI. Um, it's this true story. And these, so these two priests, they go to Japan, right? And they go, and they're going to bring the gospel to Japan. They are going to bring Jesus to Japan. And they show up, and it's really quick. And then one of the priests is killed. And his life's over. And then the other priest is arrested. And he's thrown in this prison. And he's tortured. And it's a really horrible life. He's starving to death. It's like all the bad things you can do in someone's life in one place. And then every now and again, the authorities would pull this priest out. And they'd walk this priest over. And they would set a picture of Jesus on the ground. And they said, just step on Jesus' face. And all this can end. All this can end. And the priest couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. So they throw him back in prison and they torture him longer and longer and longer. And they pull him back out and he puts down uh, this picture of Jesus. And the priest can't do it. So they put him back in and they torture him and they torture him. And then one day they pull out the picture. This is the part that messes with me. Puts the picture down and the priest says, I can't do it anymore. And he steps on Jesus' face. And I wonder, is that us? Is that us? Do we have an Ephesian faith? Or not really? Is it more like a summer camp kind of faith? The Ephesian faith was a faith that costed. It costed everything. You know, if we had to pick, if we're like, okay, which faith do you want to choose? The summer camp kind of faith or the Ephesian faith? I'm pretty sure, I mean, unless we just don't like being hurt or something, we'd pick the Ephesian faith and say, that's probably the right one, right? These people are hardcore. They've got it figured out. What's interesting, though, is Jesus has a criticism of the Ephesian faith. And I think his criticism of the Ephesian faith is the same criticism of a summer camp faith. I want you to see this. If you have your Bible, um, open up to Revelation 2 again and take a look starting in verse 4. I want you to see this. This is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus again. Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you did not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. <clears throat> but you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has, says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's in verse 4 right there. If you're looking closely, Jesus says this. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first, church in Ephesus. You have Forsaken the love you had at first, those of us with that summer camp kind of faith. It is possible to practice a faith that is all about experiences, like a summer camp kind of faith, and still be missing something. It's possible to live a dedicated faith to Jesus and do all the right things and persevere till the end and actually still be missing something key to your faith. Jesus says in the letter of Revelation that the missing thing is love. 
it's possible to have that summer camp faith type moment and enjoy all of it and just love worship and have an intensity of emotion in that moment, but actually not love God. It, it's possible to have an Ephesian kind of faith where it is gritty, baby. We're going to get it done. We're going to follow the rules. We are going to do this one by the book and do all the right things and even, even invoke Jesus' name. But not love him. You see? You see, you can have a rule follower faith or a mushy-gushy spiritual faith, whatever one you choose, and you can do all of that without loving God. The primary spiritual question that Jesus is interested in is the one question, how much do you love me? How much are you loving God in your life? It's the only metric. That's the one. Persevere. Follow the rules. Look for me on the mountaintop. Look for me at summer camp and at the Christian concert. But love me first. Love me. Do you love God? The most basic question, isn't it? Of course. But do you? Like when you look at your life, just look at this week and look at all the things that happened, all the things that made you happy, all the things that made you upset, all the things that made up your week, how much of that week was filled with, oh yeah, I love God, I love God. That's what Jesus asks for. If Jesus were to walk through these doors and then walk up here and start speaking to us, I'm pretty sure he would probably have a lot to say because he's Jesus, I'm guessing. But I know he would say one thing. He would say, TFRC, do you love me? Do you? That's the challenge in Ephesus, to love God. Persevere, do it. Like, follow God's rules. That's good for you. You should do that. But don't mistake following the rules for loving God. Go, go to the Christian concerts and worship God with everything that you have. Like, go to summer camp. Do it. You need to. It's important. But don't mistake that for loving God. God asks you to love him. It's a relational thing. God wants a relationship with us. Do you have one? Jesus says, do you love me? And the question for us is, well, do we? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is in your word, God, that you truly do speak into our lives, God. You speak to each of us individually, all at the same time, God. We thank you for that. God, we ask, um, as we think about our lives, God, to examine ourselves thoroughly. Um, at the end of the day, God, do we have a real, vibrant relationship with you? Do we love you, God? And if we don't, God, reveal a way forward. Soften our hearts so that we can learn to do so. God, we thank you for your cross where you showed and poured out your love on us, God. We ask that you help us learn to love you in response and be a friend to you. We, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, church?